listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, effusing the wisdom of the ages to you from the frozen reaches of Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, uh, calling you from the balmy latitudes of Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen, participating from the balmy regions of my room in Boston, Massachusetts. love that. Our question for episode number 15 is something like, how should a philosopher approach the study of history? Which the fact that I had to use the word philosopher in there means that this is not a question that a normal person would would care about. uh, Because the reading that we chose for this week doesn't actually tell you a hell of a lot about history, but more about the author himself. It is the introduction to the philosophy of history taken from lectures by George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And you get a link to an online version of that reading, plus a link to what I consider a better uh, translation in a paperback version that you could purchase at our website, partiallyexaminedlife.com. Here are the ground rules we've established for running these here discussions. Number one, we don't assume that our audience knows anything about any of this. And when it comes to Hegel, there is a whole lot to not know. (laughs) Number two, no gratuitous name dropping. We're interested in ideas, not with fetishizing a bunch of dead philosophers. If we have a point to make, we're just going to make it and not say, for instance, you would know what I'm talking about if you had read Strom Thurmond's The Techniques and Styles of Interpretive Dance. (laughs) And number three, we shall be rigorous and exact in all that we say, except in the case we're not doing so seems like it would be more entertaining. All right. So I was hardly able to spit out the intro there without Seth exploding (laughs) in his joy over Hegel. So go ahead, Seth. So first off, I have a couple of things. The first thing is, I am the one who's doing the editing on the previous episode. And in my introduction to that episode, I predicted that the Texas Longhorns would be winning the national championship as we recorded it shortly before that happened. I'm here to officially say that congratulations to Alabama Crimson Tide. <laughs> and we are all extremely disappointed at the outcome of the game. But not to take anything away from them, they played a great game. But I felt compelled, I should say reason demanded, that I course correct as the unfolding of the world historical spirit did not exactly (laughs) occur in the way that I anticipated. So I've been extremely busy and did not like pre-order a copy of the book from Amazon, you know, to get the shipping and all that kind of stuff. I just figured this week, no problem, I'll run to Barnes & Noble or one of the used booksellers around town or Borders, because surely there's a bunch of copies of Hegel's Introduction to the Philosophy of History floating around a large university town. Let me tell you how incorrect I was. There is literally a, I'm going to say, shelf and a half of philosophy books at any major bookseller anymore, including the used bookstores. And of Hegel's works, the only one that remains is that sort of grotesque peach-colored version of the Phenomenology of Spirit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And otherwise, there is nothing. So I think, for all intents and purposes, Americans have given up on reading philosophy in general, but they have certainly given up on reading Hegel. (laughs) Well, doesn't that say something more about about patterns of book-selling that that we people who would read this kind of thing are just more likely to go to the internet than dig around somewhere? Wasn't he a Nazi or something? 
<laughs> hey, speaking of, I, I, have, I, have a, I have a book selling story to tell you that I went to, this is in Austin, I believe, and we went to some sort of uh, outlet, some sort of like factory discount place for books. And they had in the like how to write section, like, you know, how to put a sentence together, that kind of thing, Heidegger's basic writings. <laughs> Because <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> I just want to see the person who like is trying to get their resume a little more polished. Right Thinking of that as a guidebook. Right now, when do you put and, the apost- and whites elements of style? <laughs> yes. When, when do you use the apostrophe on its? Das Dasein, der in der Welt sein. Fantastic. Oh, oh, oh. Hey, we should give some kind of basic history of this guy. In other words, like where he, where he stands in the historical framework of the world. He was, he was after Kant. He was a little before Nietzsche. <laughs> there you go. That's all that's, you need to know. That's what I, yeah, that's my context. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing you need. To, so he was a university professor like all of them. He was around during the French Revolution and uh, was very enthusiastic uh, he enjoyed, he he felt that was uh, a very important world historical event. He was actually a fan of the French in general, I think. And you can't study philosophy either academically or even informally without coming across him somehow. He stands, even to those who know only his name, he stands as some kind of monumental figure in the history of philosophy in much the same way as Kant does. Hate him or love him. That's my two cents. I didn't know previously that the people that taught me Hegel were, in fact, revisionists on Hegel. But I was looking at the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article about Hegel mm. that says that most of the people, the Hegel scholars, as of you know the end of his life and the beginning of the 20th century and all that, the people that we talked about Hegel, Hegelians, F.H. Bradley, in the context of our Wittgenstein episode, is somebody that Wittgenstein and Russell were trying to dethrone um so there's that version of hegel that they were arguing against which is really sort of the mature hegel who is very uh you know has this emphasis on this weird notion of logic that is not what logicians would consider logic today but also seems very theistic seems very traditional in certain ways even though he was after kant maybe he was saying ah kant says you can't know anything about the in itself about god and immortality and whatever but no, no, no. Hegel's all about the absolute spirit and us as manifestations of God and kind of sounding like Leibniz and things like that. We've got this Sorry. picture of the mature Hegel, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about today because these lectures are toward the end of his life. In fact, there is no book that he wrote called The Philosophy of History or Introduction to Philosophy of History. It's just these are lectures he gave, which is it turns out that these are an easier way into his system than some other things Probably because they're lectures and you can't be such an obscure ass when you're talking to people as you can in a book, right? <laughs> like if you have to actually face these students, even if they're your, the, you know, your, the peon students out there, you still have to try to sound slightly clear. So does that uh, mean that by doing a podcast with three clowns like us, we can be more, <laughs> more ass-like than somebody <laughs> writing a book and less ass-like than somebody with an audience? <laughs> I, I suppose. But we get to actually answer each other and will not feel shy about doing so. But actually, this side of Hegel is not something that I learned in school. What I was taught was actually more the Phenomenology of Spirit, which is his first book, looking more at his concrete 
notions of the development of the self. We've talked a little about that. Maybe the thing he's most famous for, apart from the dialectic, is this uh, the master-slave. So something that's supposed to tell us about how self-consciousness develops. Mm-hmm. So he's like one of the early guys, and in fact, the term phenomenology, that's in phenomenology of spirit, you know, there's a giant movement of phenomenology after him. They didn't mean quite the same thing that he meant by it. They were, I think we talked about this before, they're trying to describe experience as it occurs to us in itself, as opposed mm-hmm. to those naughty empiricists who are talking about my perceiving green is my perceiving sense data and, you know, making up all these sort of theoretical terms that we'll talk about when we talk about Hume and Locke and those guys. So these phenomenologists were supposed to be just describing the phenomena as they are occurring sort of as free of theory as possible, and which, of course, gets you into a discussion of how theory influences the way you describe things. But in any case, Hegel is, was giving an early version of this, and in fact, it was sort of a more broad version, because it's not even like phenomena as they appear to a single subject, right? They're kind of phenomena as they appear to consciousness in general, to spirit, which is a more diffuse, weirder notion, which is probably what we should start by talking about, right? Yes. So he talks about history as the progression of the actor on the stage of history. Of course, there are individuals and there are nations, but really all these boil down to is the world spirit coming to self-consciousness of itself. That's kind of a lot I just to thought to, to, to start with the weirdest possible thing, which is also <laughs> what the phenomenology, again, his way earliest book, mm-hmm. whereas the history is, is the latest, is also about the very same thing, except it's approached from a very different style where it sort of starts with, you know, from the ground up describing you know, starting with sense data and then concepts and kind of doing this epistemological study, kind of like Kant does. So this revisionist view of Hegel that I was taught really focuses more on his epistemology, his, his uh, psychology, that kind of stuff. Whereas his, his mature thought, he really liked to talk a lot about, uh, you know, philosophy of right is a much more painful, is his last actual book, right? Is all about politics, Right, and it's much more painful than the philosophy history one, but they're they're certainly related, mm-hmm. and they all have to do with this uh, notion of of spirit or Geist is the German, right? Yes. So I think we should point out that the first I don't know I would say forty or fifty pages of the philosophy of history is actually quite readable, I think, relatively mm-hmm. speaking, and. One of the things that's key is that he points out at some point early on that <laughs> this was my favorite. He's trying to explain what he's going to do and why he's doing it. And he says, <laughs> I'm sorry. He says that, listen, what I'm going to do here is show you that the idea or reason is the true eternal and absolutely powerful essence that reveals itself in the world. And the world is nothing else but this revealed in its honor and glory. And this thesis has been proved by philosophy. And he says, I'm not obliged to make any demands upon your faith that you believe that. I'll just tell you that I've already done all the work and I know it to be a fact. So you can just take my word for it. Well, and after you read the 500-page book that <laughs> exactly. is after the introduction, which I didn't even glance at. Did you guys? <laughs> no. No. Um, but I thought it was kind of funny because he, he basically, in the first just few pages, just completely unloads on people and then says, 
But we're going to take a lot of this on faith because I've proved it elsewhere. So I'm just going to kind of explain it to you here. I just have this <laughs> image of the uh, earnest students in the class. You know, when you have that moment when you first take a seminar where the professor just lays something out and you think, oh, my God, I am so in over my head. I'm so out of my <laughs> element. And you don't realize, you know, that that's purposely done from a rhetorical perspective to take the arrogance out of you. <laughs> just imagine him delivering this in person. But the purpose of the book is for him tell us about this thing he wants to call universal history. And universal history is going to be an explanation of how not the world in the sense of the physical world, but the world of the spirit, which you can think of as mind or consciousness uh, to some culture. extent. Culture, culture, in fact, progresses from a state of what we might call unreason or brutishness to towards reason, and that it moves in a, if not linear, at least it grows and progresses, and that he believed that a study of the history of the world would show this progression towards this ideal end that would be brought about by reason, which he described as freedom. So there's this absolute liberty, absolute freedom, which is the end goal of the world spirit revealing itself, and that if we look and do a history of the world, we will be able to see that. Now, what that actually means is difficult to understand, but that's the purpose of the work. He doesn't mean by freedom what you think. No. <laughs> you listeners. Yeah. He doesn't mean liberty, you know, in the sense of what he calls caprice and the state of nature freedoms that Hobbes talks about. He means freedoms in insofar as they are aligned with the higher goals of spirit and ultimately the state, right? And reason. I mean, the key is that... The, reason is instantiated by the state. And Yes, reason. Re, the key is that it's freedom to be completely, I don't want to say rational, because that implies something else, but it's the freedom dictated by reason, which the, is a weird thing to say. Well, I, I don't think this is a new idea, and I think we've talked about this before with Kahn and perhaps Leibniz, because the typical go-around for the whole problem of free will, right, is to talk about freedom as adherence to some set of principles over another, because it becomes incoherent just to say, well, you know, free will must mean that I can arbitrarily do what I want as if uh, there's a tear in a fabric of the space-time continuum and I'm not part of the, you know, deterministic universe. There's, there's that whole problem. So free will becomes not, it's not that there's no such thing as contingency and deterministic forces, right? which, you know, manifest themselves in individuals and their passions. It's just that your actions become aligned with a particular set of laws. So in Kant's case, you know, when we, with the groundwork reading we did, the workaround was that the laws came from oneself. In this case, the laws come from reason. It, it's, a way, it's the same way Kant says it. It's another iteration of what, what Kant said. So, yeah. It's, but it relativizes him, right? Because the laws here are not universal laws. They are something that come from the society in which you are living in and they align with the ethics and actual legal laws of society of that particular society right but there he's you get gradations here so so the society can be more or less free it's not all or nothing and so you know some particular state 
may have set of laws which are they're freer than the despotism say of the you know the early uh-huh. i guess asians that he talks about but they're not the the, the grand ending in which um the, the state has perfected itself i guess I was just going to say, I don't want to jump to, he doesn't introduce the concept of the state until quite a bit on in the, the essay. I just wondered if you maybe want to do a little pre-work on the, his talking about different kinds of history and, and so forth. Do we need to, to go over that, the original, reflective, philosophical? Does that even... Uh, so chapter one is what, what Seth is talking about. I, no, I don't think that's so helpful. <laughs> it's, it really is boring. <laughs> He's saying, why do people write history? You could be writing it just like, like Herodotus writing about what's going on at the time, or you could be writing reflective history, which is hoping to learn from the past, like, like Machiavelli was doing in our last episode, or, you know, history of art, you know, it could be just getting at some, some uh, particular aspect of it, but he's interested in philosophical history, which I thought the only interesting part of that was, well, philosophical history is supposed to be analytic in some important way. And he, he warns us against doing what a lot of German historians He's, he accuses of doing, which is imposing some narrative on existence, uh, on, on events that have already occurred. And of course, the narrative makes Germany the most awesome endpoint of all that has happened before. Yeah. Uh, and he warns us against that, but yet it's hard for me to see then as he goes to this, the rest of this uh, reading, how he's not doing that himself. Given that he, just to jump ahead a little, given that he thinks that seemingly the best kind of state that's the endpoint of history uh, that gives the maximum freedom is the constitutional monarchy. Like, right. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so that's chapter one. So you want? <laughs> we go to chapter two. All right, fair enough. So that's when he introduces what you were talking about, uh, Seth, as the thing he clobbers his students over the head with by saying, "Reason is the engine that drives all history," which seems to be the most obviously controversial point in there and that causes me to want to dismiss him entirely frankly but he at least explains in this chapter a little of what he might mean which is uh you could say that uh you know reason runs the universe like uh anaxagoras right we talked about in our physics episode which is just to say that natural phenomena follow natural laws which doesn't mean that the natural phenomena look to the natural laws and say oh we better follow those it's just you can use mathematical law mathematical formula or something like that something law-like to describe things right uh and so he doesn't mean that but that's a sense in which we we can see that i mean there's an un- uncontroversial sense of in, in which reason guides history right in that natural law sense so. yeah he, he's trying to distinguish what by explaining these other versions like distinguish his own view which is not entirely opposed to that 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 anaxagoras version the second one is that uh History is run by providence, right? You could, if you, if you have religious faith, you could say God is leading man ever closer toward heaven or something. Or, but the thing he's critical about that is people, and he does believe that because this absolute spirit, it's God. He, t- he spells that out. <laughs> Sorry. Fucking spoiler. spoiler alert. <laughs> he puts there. it, he mentions it right there. I'm not, I'm not jumping ahead here. I know, I know. But, but he uh, he criticized that people that believe in providence, they would not presume to think they can know providence because of how could you know what God thinks? But no, he the thing he wants to argue for is that the, the world of spirit, right, the world of self-conscious beings or beings with, with uh, 
some sort of intelligence as opposed to natural phenomena moves in law-like ways that sort of according to his logic, the logic of internal logic of ideas, that's kind of like Anaxagoras's, but a little different that we'll talk about the, the, uh, his dialectic again, um, but that it moves toward sort of like providence. But if we analyze the movement of history in the past, you know, by using his logic as a tool, we can figure out where it's going. So we can be, Yes, it's where God wants the, the world to go, but we can know that. And not because, you know, we read the Bible really closely or something, but because we use the conceptual tools that Hegel has worked out earlier and coming up with his logic uh, to look at past events. Yeah, you know, one way of, of thinking about this, too, is, is in terms of that conflict that we addressed in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals reading, where we talked about the sort of analog to natural law, which was this internal moral law that comes from from within. And that so you, you have this kingdom of ends where where everyone does what they ought to do, which is completely hypothetical and consistent, right? It's in or it's heaven. It doesn't exist on this world. And then you have the merely natural world where everything must happen. And so for I think you, you could see Hegel as sort of, I'm going to write all the history in between those two poles and show how we're progressing towards that, uh, let's say, kingdom events, where instead of being merely this set of internal laws that, that's never actualized, in fact, we get closer and closer to actualizing them and then in this case instead of uh it coming from the you know this transcendental ego it comes from this collective geist let me make a suggestion as an entry point why don't we kind of look a little bit at what he says about the about world and what the world is and maybe that will help at least put some boundaries um so i think early on in in the second part of the essay he talks about the world, including what he calls the physical and the psychical. Um, and so you shouldn't read psychical as psychological, but essentially he's delineating between sort of nature, uh, which is the world of matter or, or things, physical nature, and then the realm of spirit, which is somehow related to mind consciousness let's just leave it at that for now in fact i think he says in the essay it has to remain abstract and vague for now but um one of the things that he said that i thought was actually quite interesting particularly coming off of this recent philosophy of physics episode that we did is that he says physical nature is a rational system now we don't need to worry about reason as it instantiates itself in nature as far as our exposition of, of history. Um, but just as an aside, he says the principle of physical nature is unity, that physical nature is composed of parts that exclude each other and seek ideal mm-hmm. unity in an indivisible point. And this, he, he sort of builds off of the idea of gravity. So his idea mm-hmm. is all things tend towards a single point, you know, Every, all physical things tend towards a single point. They all want to join together was kind of the, that's what you need to read into this, I think. That they're all separate and dis, uh, from each other and they all want to join together into unity, but they, they can't. That's the ultimate striving of physical nature. What he says is that in opposition, spirit already has that unity in itself. And that he 
he sort of further describes that unity in itself as a form of uh, freedom, meaning your existence depends only upon yourself. So basically, things in the world matter, uh, rely on other things in the world, and they cannot exist independently. Therefore, they're not, quote unquote, free. But spirit, this abstract idea of spirit, has freedom precisely because its existence depends only on itself. It is a unity unto itself. This, uh, I love this passage, by the way, the use of the concept of gravity, which, by the way, for readers who are using the PDF, because I'm using it, it's uh, page 31. Mm -hmm. But the, and the concept of, as well of this mass and it, it, there's a center of gravity and everything is sort of pushing in towards that. And that's, that would be the unity if it were reducible to that point, which would also be its destruction. So, mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, it, he says it exhibit itself as self-destructive, as verging toward its opposite, an indivisible point. So, and if it could attain it, it would be matter no longer. It would have perished. It strives after the ideal, after the realization of its idea, for in unity it exists ideally. Spirit, on the contrary, already, already is the center of itself, and so on. I mean, how, how are we to make sense of spirit already having that unity um i suppose you could say because it's anything non-material has no parts it's sort of like the leibnizian simple the monad where it's the partless point and actually this this is reminiscent of leibniz because for leibniz it is almost the physical point which is the spiritual unity right so anyway the easy, the easy answer is to replace the word spirit with the word God, as Mark suggested earlier. But I think we don't truly understand kind of what the implication of that is until he starts talking about actuality and potentiality later on. Well, clearly he's – this notion, even though it's pretty uniquely his, is grown out of some of the philosophers he read. So Leibniz, again, which we talked about in another episode, uh, has this notion that all mind is kind of of the same stuff, but God is just the infinite kind of that stuff, right? And mind is sort of a coding over every time there is something that's sort of self-organizing. Like it could be a molecule of water, right? There's a there's a, a mind, a monad. It's not a really developed kind of monad like us, but so you could call that a soul or a spirit or something and that... But it's not self-conscious. It's not spirit in the sense of self-conscious. Yeah. Right. Uh, but they all reflect each other, and they're all ultimately part of the same thing. And just if they could just get beyond their own finitude, then they would see that they're all part of God. Right? So that's kind of a version of Leibniz anyway. Mm -hmm. So okay. Hegel's running with that. He's also running with the, the, the Platonic notion. We haven't read plato talking about this yet but if you know anything about plato and his set of forms that sort of the uh there's there's these the world of ideas is in some way objective and maybe even more real than you know the gross matter that is around us and, and it all has to do with the universality of of concepts that when we when i say dog i'm not referring to just this one dog here i'm referring to dogness and that's a universal concept that when we all say that, we're all saying the same thing. No matter what ideas are in our individual heads, we're kind of making use of this concept that is not – I mean, you can give different metaphysical explanations for it. It doesn't have to be you know, something that existed before human minds existed for Hegel like it does for, uh, for, for Plato. But he's, he's running with that too. And so he, he – uh, and again, like Kant, 
when he talks about ethical notions, like whenever we make and and actually even the same goes for aesthetic notions. Like when I say this is good, I'm not saying it is good to me. I'm not saying it seems good to me. I'm making this universal proclamation. It is good. I'm saying something universal about it. And so I'm kind of calling in the universal, you know, what, what, however you want to interpret the truth of my claim, you know, by looking at who I am and what circumstances I'm saying it in the language that we use is inherently universal. So in that sense, it's like we're uh, all mind is reaching out to the the infinite in this way, to the universal. The key is that there's a connection between what we might call uh, human consciousness or the part of us that actually does conceptual, creates concepts about the world and interacts with the mm-hmm. world and some sort of abstracted world or uh, abstracted space where there are concepts or concepts of concepts or something along those lines. And Hegel has to rely on that same connection. I mean, he's that definition of spirit as being a unity in itself that that relies only on itself for its own existence. He spins into a form of self-consciousness. Namely, he says that the two things that are distinguished are the fact that that I know and what I know. That in self-consciousness, these are merged into one because, you know, it, it knows itself. And he's going to need to tie that into human consciousness when he starts talking later about how spirit manifests itself in the world, right? So he's doing the same move, like you said. He's doing the same move that Plato did. He's doing the same move that Kant did. He's doing the same move that all these guys did. He's just got a new vocabulary for it. And he's applying it in a different space. Yep. And I know that I've read a lot of people, when they talk about Hegel, they address his historicity. (laughs) Not just that he's writing about history, but that even though he has this notion that we're jumping toward the objective somehow, we're getting beyond our individual subjective selves when we talk about ethical things. He wants to stress that that's not like Kant says, because we're you know jumping toward basic truths of reason or you know toward platonic forms, but that it's something that is is social. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. A social creation, and that somehow just by using reason. By being a uh, self-conscious being, right? Sort of, he, the, he he mixes those together a lot. The reason and freedom and self-consciousness. It's yeah. kind of like you're just going through your day pushed along by things. But once you stop and look at yourself and mm-hmm. look at why you were just doing it, well, that gives you the freedom to do something else. That gives you the freedom to apply a principle to your action in the way that that's you know how Kant talks about reason governing right. you. That you're not just letting yourself be pushed by your desires. Right. So he, he has that same kind of thing. But instead of, uh, as for Kant, that getting at reason is getting at this universal thing. Well, for Hegel, it's not quite universal. It's larger than us. But it has more to, to do with uh, something that's been defined by our culture. Whether explicitly or sort of as the next step that our culture is going to take. Or the intellectual life of the culture is going to take. Mm-hmm. So... You use the term culture, Mark, and I just have a little bit of an issue with that, only because even though I think you're right in the sense that that's how he was thinking, you know, and he was certainly thinking of certain types of culture and all that, the language he uses about man or human beings, he's trying to abstract a little bit and not be necessarily so culturally bound, even though he clearly had something in mind. I I think if we're going to interpret it, I want to go to the text just for a second to kind of talk about that. Because I think it's probably 
very confusing right now and probably doesn't make a lot of sense to people about what we actually mean when we're talking about development in history or unfolding in history. And one of the examples he gives, I think, covers what you're saying, Mark, about sort of cultural social change being a reflection as well as this kind of self-consciousness in the, the human beings. And he mentions at one point, not too far along, that this would be somewhere around page 33. He talks about the quote-unquote Orientals or the Chinese having this idea that a single man can be free, and then the Greeks and the Romans... Right, the, the, to just clarify, so it's the emperor. The emperor is the only one that can be free. Yes, I'm sorry. Everybody else is just their, their, their servants and have to obey. Right, and that the Greeks and Romans had a consciousness of freedom. More, They had more consciousness of freedom than the, the Chinese because there are some that are free, but they still held slaves. And then he says, Christianity introduces the idea that man as such or man as man is free. Um, but that is just the introduction of the principle, and it still is going to take a long time in the course of history to actually work that out in, in reality. But to try to get a sense of what he means by reason and, the, and spirit unfolding itself in the world, he believed that these were stages of almost evolution, if you will. It's certainly stages of world historical change and that they demonstrated a movement from the sovereign, which he talks at some point at length later, to sort of a, you know, an aristocracy or a state that's that that where there are certain members that are free, but you still have others that aren't. And it's moving towards this position where once you recognize that all human beings, men as such, are free, you'll end up building some kind of social structure and government that acknowledges that and that manifests it. And that's, that's a demonstration. That's an example of what he's talking about. The idea to hold this in opposition to is just the idea that things unfold according to natural law, right? So you might think of, yes, history, in fact, is directed and determined, but, and you could take the initial conditions and figure out the way everything's going to end based on the way everything begins and on the laws of physics that govern everything. But for Hegel, there's a sort of, I guess you'd call it teleological principle. There's a, there's an end above that guiding everything so that, you know, one, one way to look at it is this um, example of, again, the seed that he uses where he says, and this is right near where you were reading, Seth, on page 31, the, the germ or the seed contains in itself the whole nature of the tree so that there's a sense in which I guess you could think you could say there's this DNA to history or blueprint which sort of transcends even natural law. And that blueprint has to do with the development of freedom through greater and greater self-consciousness, whether you think of it abstractly or in its particular cultural manifestations. Yeah, that's where he says that essentially spirit with a capital S contains within itself its self-contained unity all of the potential that it will actualize in the world throughout the course of history until it reaches its natural conclusion, which is its end point. You know, and I, I think here of uh, there's a theodicy here. He's justifying the ways of God to man, 
given all the atrocities of history, there's there's some higher purpose. It's like he's trying to explain creation in some sense. What's the point of this self-contained spirit, God creating anything in the first place? And, and one of the classical ideas, I think, is that spirit remains abstract. There's no bodies in heaven, right? There's no carnality. There's no sensuousness. There's no physicality. And to reach the fullest self-comprehension involves creating this mirror in nature and then coming to know oneself to actualize oneself through this progression towards self-consciousness in this instantiated physical universe yeah there's a <laughs> Wes. that's there's a nice there's a nice you know me finding the poetic right here's my here's my contribution <laughs> um this is a direct quote from the pdf page 35 but even regarding history as the slaughter bench at which the happiness yeah. of peoples, the wisdom of states, and the virtue of individuals have been victimized, the question involuntarily arises to what principle, to what final aim these enormous sacrifices have been offered. Yeah, there I better love that be one, slaughter right? Slaughter bench. <laughs> right. That's because the primary obvious objection when somebody says reason is ruled by history is like, well, why is it suck so so much so far? <laughs> like it really doesn't seem like it's progressing. It seems like things are better in the good old days, or you know whatever. Yeah, and he's he's and he's writing this shortly after the French Revolution, which was horrific, absolutely horrific. I mean, in terms of you know slaughter bench, he has to believe that something. Yeah, and even even some better. of his heroes like Napoleon, right? They, they do horrible things, even though they're they're bringing history to its next stage. Let's say each development, I guess, because of the negation of the previous stage, it can only come about through some sort of violence. There's an inevitability if there's going to be change and becoming, and there's going to be destruction. Well, that actually is a good um, segue. So the what we had been talking about was sort of this first section where he talks about the characteristics of the nature of spirit, the abstract nature. So we just kind of have to go along with this idea that spirit is this abstract unity that wants to unfold itself in the world through history to some sort of end. And it has a characteristic that makes you think of consciousness or self-consciousness, uh, which is where you make the linkage into the transcendental ego and so forth. But the question becomes then, if you even take that on faith, which I know Mark would never do. Well, that's, that's, the, ab that's the absolute spirit part of it. Like yes. spirit itself is supposed to be something we're intimately familiar with. Well, I'm it talking is, about it is the spirit. mental. I'm talking about absolute spirit. Okay, but if you... All right. Because Wes started talking about these great figures in history. And the question becomes, okay, well, how does this absolute spirit plan to actually unfold in the world and change the world in history since it can't actually, it actually isn't phenomenal or has any kind of physical essence or anything like that? How is it going to drive change and make the world unfold the way it wants? What is the means by which spirit is going to unfold as freedom in the world? Why tell us? <laughs> well, in no other way than through the actions and activity of men. Oh! And how does that work I thought it was exactly? going to be something cooler than that. No, unfortunately not. Lasers. Cosmic <laughs> rays. Yeah, it seems like an awfully inefficient way to do things. <laughs> well, and, and it is. And when he starts to explain it, it becomes even like more tragic, right? 
because yeah. he says he says that the truth is is that people act out of passion or need or self interest, and that that in itself is stands in opposition to the quote the quote unquote limitations of justice or morality, which is to say reason. Right. This is what we're going to find mm. out later on is that reason actually means justice and morality and government. If they ask in self-interest, which is different than acting in passion. Correct. Well, yeah, he meant, he uses passions. So not passion with a capital P, but the passions like acting out of self-interest in the way that we think of acting out of self-interest in the, you know, our state of nature discussion from Hobbes, for example, that the human, human beings have a will to do something that's in their self-interest and that uh, that stands opposed. It, it's, the act, it's the active force that drives the world and drives human behavior, but it actually stands in opposition to where we ultimately want to be, which is in this moral, perfect government at some point. Okay. I think he has a more subtle version of argument about selfishness, but we can talk about that in a bit. Certainly, if, if you're acting purely out of your, your animal interests, then you are not doing anything of historical note and you're not driving history to its next place. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, so, is that the motor, the engine that, that's pulling the train yeah. is human activity that originally is driven from this, driven out of this, this place of self-interest. The human will yep. is the motive force that drives yeah, human you, beings to act. Right, but if it's you look not... on page 36 in the middle, the motive power that puts them in operation and gives them determined existence is the need, instinct, inclination, and passion of man. And this is where he's talking about will. Okay, you are bringing up his, his sort of subtle argument about what selfishness is. What could be in our self-interest is just, or what we are passionate about, means we just, we take an interest in something. Mm-hmm. And when we take an interest in something, it could be something that is really purely personal and yep. of no interest to anybody else. And that's not going to drive history forward. But we could also take an interest in promoting freedom or we could take an interest. We could, we could essentially claim something as part of ourself, right? Right. As, as, and that could be anything. And that, that the people who, who, yeah. who grab onto these universal claims, who grab onto these ethical claims and, and take a passion in them and make them part of themselves, those are the ones that really drive history. Those are the ones that are the, the world historical individuals, right? If they're, if they're doing that and they're also in a you know, yeah. position of power to be able to actually affect anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were going to get there, but if, and of course they're not they're not taking on these passions by virtue of obligation, or it, it's that their passions happen to align more with, let's say, freedom. You know, so it's still it's still personal in some sense. It's just that mm-hmm. at each stage, these people emerge whose personal passions align with with freedom and the larger collective goal. I right. I just I just stress this because this was like the big thing in my revisionist teaching of Hegel that I got from from Fitchow Bergman at University of Michigan uh, was the, the big emphasis was on this. Uh, and we talked about this before in terms of Hobbes, that if you're if the way you talk about ethics is, oh, everybody is selfish. Therefore, you can't really act ethically or something like that. That just misses the point. Mm-hmm. It, it misunderstands what selfish is. It, it, it pictures us all as primarily these atomic units that have these, you know, little balls of greed that are reaching out toward when in fact, that's not how the self is created. We, we, we don't start out as self-conscious. Self-consciousness is something that is achieved. We don't have self-interests until we figure out, until we, you know, gain enough of a sense of self to 
then point at something and say, that is part of me. And so you could, you know, have a sense of self that encompasses your family, that encompasses your society, that encompasses the ethical itself. There really is, you know, right. quite a lot of people. It's hard to argue that everybody does something, things, you know, purely that have self-interest in a narrow sense when through history, so many people have like died you know, in religious wars, fighting for ideas, is God in right. the bread or not? You know, for the, the Protestant versus Catholic. Uh, anyway, so that's the short version of that. Right. So one, one other way of saying that is that our desires are culturally conditioned or that they are influenced by the desires of the other. What other people want or what society says I should want, that becomes a uh, huge factor in, in what my passions are right which is tied into what your self-conception is again getting back to that the master slave thing that that i said hegel was famous for what that's about is about how we define ourselves and we define ourselves through mutual recognition that i can't just decide who i am and what my interests are it's because my teachers my parents my siblings everybody i run into treats me certain ways that is what gets me to actually maybe look at myself and sort of figure out that they, they form the self that self-consciousness you know, starts on. Right, because my, my fundamental desire is for the desire of the other in that dyad. So my self-consciousness depends upon having recognition from others. Right. And in turn, that recognition is predicated on my valuing things which those others value. And, so. and also resistance from others. So in particular, in this, in this view of the master and slave, it's actually – it's not the master who gains self-consciousness because all the slaves are obeying him. In fact, that's kind of like not having resistance. Like I can just reach through you know, my slaves and, and make them like my arms and my legs and my tools. Uh, yeah. That doesn't give me a sense of myself. It's the slave who's sort of being thwarted and being put in a corner by the master. That's the one who has this uh, ability to then gain a sense of self. And we saw that exactly – uh, with Nietzsche, too. So the master and slave morality, the masters don't become self-reflective. The slaves are the ones who are, are stymied at every point and turn inward, and, and even though it's in a poisonous way for Nietzsche. Uh, but they're the ones who gain self-consciousness and really intelligence in all that makes you know, people interesting. So, so it's, all the, it's the same story. Yeah. So if you, if you have too much homogeneity, again, going back, that's why Hegel's ripping on the Chinese. <laughs> because he thinks... <laughs> He says really freaking obnoxious things about the Chinese and later about the Native Americans, like and just about and about India that, oh, even though they have all this, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but even though they have all this culture, it's not really history because they're not really self-conscious because they don't, you know, because ultimately they don't have the same notion of freedom that we do. Wow. I feel like I pushed a button. I don't know. I, I, I was trying to say something very innocuous, but um, because, I mean, I think it's, it's an important point. For me, just to say, absolute spirit has to have some kind of agency in the world. And that agency happens to be human activity or human beings, but not just blind, brutish, self-interested human activity. What happens is that you get a few people here and there, maybe more than a few, that are become reflective, are self-conscious in the sense, in, in a kind of... I want to say imitating or mirroring the 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 self-conscious unity of the spirit in their own conscious mind who strive to do something. They have an idea. They catch a glimpse of the, you know, the idea of spirit and they say, oh, well, I need to unify this state like Caesar, right, who becomes the autocrat. 
or Napoleon or somebody. And they don't, they aren't consciously trying to instantiate the end goal idea of spirit, but they're partaking somehow. They're reflecting without consciously being aware of it. And it's those people who, this is how spirit advances itself. And I wanted to ask you guys about this, that it seems, is this the origin of the great man theory of history or was it was it somewhere else and he just appropriated it this way but i think it's the origin of the the opposite of that because the the great men here are pushed on by the idea right they're pushed on by um a more fundamental force cultural force right if they if they didn't do it somebody else would it's not like some individual comes in and carves up and imprints himself on the world he's merely a manifestation of these inevitable spirit spirit developments but the actual work the actual work of moving forward history whether it's done by this this individual or that individual is still done by an individual of course yeah yeah Yeah. he talks about these world historical individuals it's not clear to me that only world historical individuals can advance things i mean i don't think it's an accident that he thinks you know know, even you need a even though you want a freedom you want a constitutional monarchy because you want some individual at the head who's pushing things forward it just wasn't clear to me that he meant that all changes are because of some individual teaching the rest of us or whether there can just be mass movements that there's no one particular person that's pushing it forward. Mark, do you want to be reassured that you're advancing things as well? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm wondering exactly how much of, of uh, like you were saying, like an elitist <laughs> this, yeah. this yeah. doofus is. I keep feeling like we should talk more to understand this about dialectic because the reason that society will always go a certain direction, you know, whoever it is that's running it, and it might not happen right now if there's not a, a powerful person, if there's not one of these world historical individuals there to, to, to make it his passion to advance it in this way and teach the rest of us that that's the, you know, the new way that we should think about things. But it's something about the internal logic of the ideas themselves. And Machiavelli kind of talked this way, too, that he thought certain kinds of government would inevitably, a monarchy is, is inevitably going to lead to despotism. And that, because that's sort of just, it's just going to happen. It's just internal to the logic of the type of thing itself. Like that when you get people in a certain situation, in a certain setup, things are going to evolve in a certain way. And you could figure out that out. You know, for, for Machiavelli, it's just because he's seen that happening enough times. But for, for Hegel, it seems like if you just look at the idea itself, you'll be able to see what's going to come next if you really have an understanding of it. And he thinks this is, this is uh, true just across the entirety of all spiritual matters, right? And in, in his logic, anything mental is going to have this sort of self-propulsive nature, and it, it follows the progression of the dialectic. So should, should we talk a little bit about sort of some examples of dialectic and things, even if they're not from this reading? And Yeah, could you, could you do that? Well... So I was reading a little about his logic, and so like I guess the beginning of his logic, he starts by considering just being, abstract, and he says, well, if you think of being, to even sort of formulate that of a concept, then you have to have the notion of nothingness as its, not its opposite, but its contrary. And then once you sort of think of nothingness, then that rolls you, I mean, you can't just think of absolute nothingness, there has to be 
again, something just sort of distinguishing from it. But and this distinguishing between being and nothingness gives rise to the synthesis between the two of, two of them, which is particularity. So it's not just being in general; it's a particular being. And so there's there's his prime his prime first example, sort of prior to all other possible ways of thinking, is this notion, movement from being to nothingness to particularity. So that's the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. Yeah, there's the old problem of when we describe things as um, changing, we have to grapple with this problem of how they are not the same thing as they were in the past and yet are in some sense. So there's the nothingness, there's the negation of something that was, and and yet the, the new entity also, it contains both the previous iteration as well as its negation. Right, so that's a, that's really what the synth... So, so you could talk about this in terms of the progression of, you know, art forms. You know, maybe everybody is, is uh, you know, trying to do very realistic pictures of things. And so people start reacting against that. Like, no, I want to, you know, draw angels. I don't want to draw baskets of fruit anymore. And then somebody, when they get tired of that, they'll maybe be a form that, you know, has has the uh, the good elements of realism... But then also the good elements of the fantasy. So maybe that's where expressionism might come from, that we can draw realistic things, but we can infuse you know, the, what, what drove us to want to draw fantasy in the first place, right? Some of our emotional life. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely, the, I think, the kind of example that he might use to talk about a dialectical progression in the history. And, and I can, once you start looking at that, like look at trends in music, look at trends in, you know, what, so we had Prague and then we had in, in the early 70s, in the late 60s and early 70s, and then punk was this reaction against that. But then you had New Wave, which was kind of like taking advantage of, of both or, you know, retaining the good elements of, of the intelligence that was in Prague, but then also, you know, acknowledging that punk had a point and trying not to be all snooty about it. So you get the talking heads. Yeah, one way to look at this is the what's pushing forward one stage to the next. What each stage or phase has to have some sort of internal contradiction, that sort of tension that is going to lead to a, a new development. There's an engine there, and that otherwise it would simply remain static. And that engine has something to do with internal internal tension. Right. So politically. I mean, he thinks that the first kind of political relations are you know, somebody dominating somebody else. So you like how he describes China, that you have uh, a, a despotic relationship. And then the reaction to that is, you know, eventually people get sick of that or <laughs> they, they rebel, they could fall into chaos. Well, OK, so the synthesis of those is something like the constitutional monarchy is let's keep what was cool about having one person at the head, but acknowledge why people would rebel against that and do something so that they're represented as well. So again, going back to the progression of history, then if you say like, why did Napoleon or Caesar or whatever do what they did? Well, they were really strong, passionate individuals, maybe even just pursuing their own dreams of glory. But that was the next thing sort of on the list that was coming down the pike they just happened to be the one that, that took the bull by horns and did it. I mean, what, what do you guys think of that? I guess the question is, Seth, how is it that the this individual great man or great human being, let's say, uh, takes the reins of the historical forces and affects this change? But along know? a predetermined route, I guess, right. is, is what 
So we take, for example, the Roman Republic, and we say there are contradictions inherent in this form of government that essentially sowed the seeds of its own destruction. And in opposition to a republic is a despotic state or an autocracy or whatever the... Tyranny. And so it was necessary that the republic fall and that this despotic form of government come into play. And Caesar happened to be the guy who made it happen. But from a world historical perspective, the events were playing out the way they needed to play out in order for the next stage of evolution to happen. It doesn't mean that an autocratic state was the next stage of evolution. It just means that in order for something to become, the republic had to, in essence, not necessarily be destroyed, but it had to encounter its opposite get synthesized into this new form of government. Or perhaps when Caesar dies, then you get this new form of government. This in, in that sense, I guess you could say it could have been Caesar, it could have been Brutus, it could have been anybody. But from a world historical perspective, what needed to unfold was that the Republic needed to be disbanded in favor of this other form of government. Which it's always, when you raise historical examples, then we as people who are not as up on history as we should be, don't feel comfortable contradicting them like yeah i know enough about caesar and what happened do i know enough to say it could have gone some other way no so even when i'm thinking about hitler okay there are all these elements in germany that were sort of going toward evil tyranny does that mean it had to happen or could it have just been diffused and have it never happen maybe have it just skip that stage and go straight to where germany is now Again, I don't quite know enough about pre-World War II Germany to say what had to happen at the time, but it seems to me awfully random and contingent. And for Hegel to, as I think he really is implying that the particular geist of that nation had to go some particular way, just, it seems silly to me. I kind of agree. I like the idea of using this as an interpretive tool to look at what happened and described it, but history just seems to be filled with so many accidents that... <laughs> And near misses and things like that that change the course. Uh, one way would be to say, well, of course it had to happen that way that Hannibal decided not to attack Rome after winning the victory at wherever the hell it was up in northern Italy. And instead of taking the initiative, he, he was conservative and that ultimately sealed his fate. Well, that was because he wasn't connected to the absolute spirit and bringing on the world historical change that needed to happen. <laughs> Yeah, hindsight, <laughs> hindsight. But I agree with you, Mark, that it just seems like you would have to interpret many, many, many events in history that appear to be completely random and accidental as motivated by absolute spirit that maybe has a sense of humor or play about it, because it is not this inevitable, clearly constructed march of progress forward that is obvious at every step in retrospect to anybody except him. Although, you know, it was this whole idea was hugely influential through Marx. You know, Marx, in a sense, was an optimist, and this idea of progress is there as, as well. It's an application of Hegel to say that there's this inevitable transition from feudalism to capitalism to communism, let's say, where the thesis and antithesis has to do with tensions between social relations and class structure, and then the underlying economic and technological development. So when technology reaches a certain point, feudalism as a social arrangement doesn't make any sense anymore, and inevitably the synthesis becomes capitalism, let's say. That sort of determinism, it's not completely implausible. I'm not saying I believe in it, but I'm not saying it's completely implausible that there's a directed directedness based on certain tensions between certain elements of history, say, 
the economic material substrate of things and then culture or class relations and stuff like that. I agree with the idea that any system, any political system, any social system, any government ultimately contains within itself its own dissolution. Nothing is permanent. And I agree that you can say we can see how cultures interact and cultural forces come into play that change the way governments and people and so forth interact. And you can go back and say, we understand how the advent of industrialism combined with certain characteristics of peasantry and the geography and this blah, blah, blah of Central Europe resulted in X, Y, and Z. And that without saying, A, that it was inevitable that it roll out that way. And without saying that that is striving in any way, shape, or form towards a goal. If Marx was doing the math and the math was that clear, he would have seen that, that a certain kind of socialism was going to inev inevitably lead to not dictatorship of the proletariat, but Stalinism or some form of totalitarianism. Well, I, I think Marx would say we haven't reached the historical stage yet. And oh, those okay. Were, well, those were sorts of those were illusory. They, they may have called themselves communism, but they but they weren't. You're right. It's kind of when you're looking at what the necessary changes in history are, it's because you're looking at some tension and saying something's got to give. So you might look at this America and like some of the half of it is really conservative and half is liberal. Eventually, they're going to go to war. <laughs> and there are plenty of people in our country, the extremists on one side, I won't say one side or the other, the extremists on one side that think that that is inevitable and there will eventually be a race war or uh, the civil war reunite. But no, there are plenty of ways that attention can be kicked down the road or resolved in part or diffused enough so the system can keep going indefinitely. It could even just last long enough until that particular tension becomes irrelevant. Just to play devil's advocate, let's just take the very specific case of feudalism. Wasn't it inevitable that that fall apart as technology and, and other economic forces develop or material conditions develop? That social relation can't really survive that. Isn't that inevitable? Right, but it, where where would it go? Like if you have a very uh, powerful government that instead of letting individual capitalists in the first place develop, you know, the way feudalism developed into capitalism with lots of independent capitalists, if right away the king became the only capitalist, that's another way that feudalism could have fallen apart. And, it, and the way it has fallen, did fall apart in some different parts of the country of the Middle East or I don't know that much about it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm just saying that. The progression from feudalism to capitalism is not inevitable in the way that it actually happened here in the West. No, I'm not saying in a, in a specific way, but I'm saying that. Could we say that history could be stuck at feudalism forever? I want to say that, that no, there's no circumstance under which it would stall at feudalism so that there are internal tensions. That's a specific example. And in the case of feudalism, you're talking about an economic system that became untenable with the advent of certain kinds of technology and the, the whole idea of peasantry and working the land and feudal yeah, estates. Marx, and Marx would say it's a social system that became incompatible with the underlying economics. Yeah, but I'm saying take that out of the equation of the way it worked. Now, at some point when somebody developed a tractor, it was going to end. Feudalism yeah. was not going to survive technology, even right. if the reason sure. it changed was because of social changes. That's, that's what I'm saying. And you can you can say things about like China's desire to keep its people in the dark and you know, off of the internet and stuff. Really, how long can that keep up? Eventually, it's just going to be impossible. They won't be able to close all the doors. Anybody who wants to get anything from any, anywhere in the world will be able to do it. But it, 
I want to keep arguing just as devil's advocate because I don't really for this directedness of history and for this inevitable changes towards a. So, Wes, why does it have to be towards something? Why does it have to be directed? Why can't it just have direction without being direct? It is moving. Nobody's denying that there's change and evolution and and all that. It's just to assert that it's towards something. But isn't isn't capitalism a more advanced state than feudalism? And isn't democracy, let's say, a uh, or a constitutional monarchy, to take Hegel's case, more advanced than tyranny, something like that? If you're going to answer that, then you got to have some criteria by which you're judging it, which Hegel obviously does. And he thinks that feudalism was less free than this constitutional monarchy. And theoretically, we could say the same thing about our representative democracy that we are more free than serfs were and peasants were. And so we are more evolved. We are further along. And we get the iPad. But, I mean, (laughs) you know, ultimately, I could also say that it's simply a difference. You don't want to take sides here? Feudalism versus capitalism? You don't want to unequivocally come down on one side or the other? Feudalism rules! (laughs) Feudalism forever, man! As a Dungeons and Dragons lover. Here's the difference. (laughs) I'll take sides if you tell me what role I get to play in feudalism. I know what my role is here. If you tell me I get to be on the top of the food chain, then I'll take feudalism any day of the week. I'd certainly love to be the guy with the premature or whatever that is. It's that master-slave thing again, which is... I have. I would have no qualms about is, trading in my self consciousness for you're land and and Completely servants. impoverished <laughs> as a as a feudal lord. Completely <laughs> impoverished. I know. If you're going to talk about that particular duality, I would want to talk more generally about sort of elitism versus everybodyism. <laughs> How do you want to say it? You could think of this this progression toward freedom as a matter of, you know, as time goes on, more and more the individual will gain prominence, will gain, will have an intellectual place in the world. So it won't just be the upper crust that are making all the decisions and coming up with all the ideas and producing all the art and then the rabble that is just getting by. Like, it seems like a pretty natural progression in history that there will be no more rabble. But then again, there are social forces working to keep rabble, right? To keep large portions of the the world impoverished. I wish that there was this directedness toward greater freedom in this way, but I just don't, I'm not so optimistic about it. Yeah. And I, I, you know, believe me, I'm a huge pessimist about that too. And I'm a, normally I'm a big advocate of, oh, nothing ever really changes and everything's, you know, it's just as bad now in different ways as it was. But what I'm fascinated by is we are comfortable talking about, let's say, biological evolution, even if we, we know that that's directed by purely natural forces. But we still think of it as an evolution. And whether you think it's legitimate or not, this is what I'm putting up for discussion. We still think of one stage as more advanced than the other. There may be something normative there. I don't know. I think Hegel, it's a social or historical version of evolution where inevitably the organism, let's say, becomes more capable and more adapted to more circumstances and more functional in a lot of ways. So anyway. Yeah, I can't go with you down that path. Why? Because evolution as a concept talks about the way that organisms change in response to their environment. And part of their environment is other organisms. So the reason we think we're better than dinosaurs is because we have bigger brains and opposable thumbs because at some point we realized that in order to be able to kill other organisms and eat them more efficiently and so forth, we had to develop this capacity But there's nothing that suggests that we are headed towards any kind of fulfilling any kind of evolutionary destiny 
the Star Trekian thing where you ultimately just become pure brain or pure energy or whatever. There's nothing that suggests that. And it's very possible that our environment... Actually, I, I think... No, I think there is. I, I, I understand what you're saying. There's not... Fittest is the wrong term because it's merely a matter of how much you can reproduce relative to a certain environment. And fit in one environment is unfit in another. But what I'm saying is that there, there actually is a progression towards organisms like human beings for which the environment becomes less and less relevant. They become we've developed functions or functionality which allows us to thrive in any environment there's there's not an environment that's going to come along that's true but weren't you about to write something about the road isn't the road an example the cormac mccarthy novel and the movie that was made of it of an environment that people cannot live in nothing we are not independent of our environment no no, no, no. i'm not saying that i'm saying i'm not saying that we're more independent we're more independent you're talking about our ability to overcome the harshness of the physical environment, temperature fluctuations. I'm, I'm still talking about biological evolution. I'm t- what I'm saying is that there's a directedness. It's not merely jumping around. The development from, let's say, single cell to human being is a directedness in the sense that human beings are much more adapted to a more general variety of environments than, let's say, a single cell, which is very environment dependent. Okay, I can go with that. You say that the goal of evolution is somehow... I mean, I still think you have to posit some kind of end game or at least some abstract end goal. And if you say that the point of evolution is that organisms adapt and the most adaptable organism is the one that thrives, then you're sort of led to the conclusion that the purpose or the goal of evolution is to create adaptability and that the infinitely adaptable organism, if it's ever created, will be the end state of evolution and that human beings are definitely more adaptable than single-celled organisms or one-eyed cats or dolphins or whatever. I don't know. I feel like I should at least pretend that I am the scientist who knows something about natural selection who would jump in at this point and say, this is all a completely bullshit way of talking about evolution. And that the whole point is that all animals have been evolving all the way around. And the the, the diversity of species means there are many different directions that one could go and successfully adapt so that the ringworm that has been exactly the same for umpteen million years, that's because that was a really awesome way that it adapted. It's, It's like saying we're new versions of chimps. No, no. In fact, chimps have been evolving just as long as we have. They just went a little different direction. Anyway, but I do I do accept your point that we're more general. I'll give actually, you that. I mean, this is something I actually do. I mean, I you know, as a hobby, evolve. You know, you I've do that read as a hobby about that I know that it's. I'm not simply bullshitting. It's not most biologists. I mean, you know, there's going to be camps, but yes, of course, there are really you know, sharks haven't changed in a long, long time because they have a a great evolutionary setup relative to their environment. But yeah, what I'm saying is the environment has changed. Yes. Look, I fully understand that the objection to saying to using fitness as an evaluative term when, again, fit in one situation could be unfit relative to another environment. What I'm talking about is a larger picture where you can talk about the variety of environments in in which an organism can function. There's a huge significance, and I think most biologists, you know, at least the ones who write popular books, think there's a huge significance to the development of, say, a large brain. It's not just that a large brain is good for this particular environment. The large, the large brain is unique in that it's so adapted to so many environments that it creates a super-dominant species. 
which is what human beings are. It's not just, oh, we, we've got this little niche and, you know, we're doing well in that niche. No. Human beings completely dominate. They're an, they're an exception in some sense. And someone like Hegel might come along and say, well, this is just a case in point, exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, there's he, an presupposes, inevitable, he presupposes. There's an inevitable development towards self-consciousness that's written into even evolution. All right, I want to stop talking okay. about evolution. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel like I could just out of contrariness, like <laughs> – you know, the fact that we're more adaptable to more environments, but yet still, like, if something changes in our atmosphere and we have a slightly different chemical composition, then we all die. And maybe a lot of the other organisms do just fine through that change, but that doesn't diminish the point that you're trying to make. So let's just, we'll give it to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think to get back to Hegel and get back to the text a little bit, that <laughs> Marx's criticism is solid. You can look at the way things went and you can easily imagine that they could have gone a different way and that the circumstances that made them go the way that they went are rarely inevitable and that there's no calculus and no logic that allows you to be predictive. Nobody who was alive at Hegel's time or who reads Hegel and understands Hegel and tries to apply the Hegelian dialectic to history to come up with this can predict what's going to happen in the future. And I think that right there kind of is the ultimate arbiter about this. It's not about being able to predict what happens in the future. It's whether, in principle, it can be predicted. If you were a scientific determinist, you would say, well, if I knew the initial conditions during the Big Bang and I knew all the variables and all the principles of physics that go into things... I'm telling then, you that he right, says... Listen, just he, listen to this in, in principle. Then you would say, yes, then I would be able to predict the whole unfolding of history. Now, that would be a natural cause scenario. And, of course, what Hegel's asserting is something different. He's saying there's a teleology here, let's say, or a spirit cause. It's a dialectical uh, cause. Informing... You're supposed yeah. to be able to use your skill in doing dialectical analysis to figure out what's going to be the antithesis of what's going on right now. I mean, you really are supposed to be able to apply this dialectical analysis at any level, like at the individual level, you know, two people, you know, will you and your coworkers get along <laughs> sort of, or at the, or the movement of, of societies from one form of government to another, or the movement of, uh, he predicts right in his book, you know, history is moving to the West, that the United States no. will be the, the history of the future and uh, the, the place where history is going on. I don't know that Hegel thinks there's predictive value because Hegel only comes along at the right historical moment. His insights, according to his very own account, they couldn't have come along 100 or 200 years before. His insights are a product also of his time. Sure. Of a certain development in self-consciousness. Yep. Yep, that's true. You know, we should finish some of his picture about the manifestations of spirit as the state and his, his idea of relation between the state and the religion and the ethics of the culture. Because these were some of the things that sort of set my teeth most on edge while I was going through it, Um, as well as what constitutes a historical culture versus these prehistorical cultures. What did you think of his notion that you can't have freedom, you can't have culture, you can't have self-consciousness without the state, and that the state is a manifestation of the religion of a culture? He thinks that the state and religion are really tied together and the ethics which seems a very old-fashioned notion to at least me now. We have a definite separation of church and state, as much as somebody might want to argue that we are a Christian nation or something, that all just seems... There's something distinct from that that... Mark, do you into... hate the troops? Is that what you're trying to say? I do hate the troops. <laughs> I hate when the troops stay in my house without... Oh, I'm sorry, they can't do that because of the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to say that the... 
Yeah, yeah. It's when he starts talking about he's finished up the summary of the means by which spirit is going to realize itself in the world, and he wants to talk about the shape that it assumes. Freedom. Are you still in part two? No, no, no. I'm saying... This is chapter three. Yeah. The positive existence of reason. He somehow thinks that the state is necessary in order for there to be the union, as he calls it, of the subjective with the rational will. In other words, the only place where human consciousness and human willing can combine with abstract reason to give us what we need is in the state where the individual has and enjoys his freedom, but on the condition of his recognizing, believing in, and willing that which is common to the whole. But this is not to be understood as if the subjective will of the social unit is attained, attains gratification and enjoyment through the common will. Right. That's why he doesn't like democracy. Right. It's not that for every decision that's made, we want to toll up everybody's individual opinions because then, and that would determine what the group does because that's not the state as having its own independent will. It really has to be something that represents us individually, but it's it's above and beyond us. Right. And he also says that, and this is, we'll echo back with things that we've done before on this cast. He says, we're not talking about a situation either where everybody's being limited by right. the state in their ability to attain their will just to get a small space of liberty for each. They're reconciled and present one identical homogenous whole. Yep. Somehow he thinks that the state will express the rational will of spirit in such a way and human beings will be expressing their own individual in such a way that they come into harmony and all the wills will be in sync. Individual will and then collective will as, and then the absolute will. They will all, I guess, be aiming at the same thing. The state mandates that you buy an iPad, but everyone wants one anyway, so... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I I don't even really understand how that could be possible. I say it and the words make sense to me, right. but I don't I don't have no well, conception of what that would even mean or how that here's would even a, look. A quote that he has in here, he says, uh, to the state belong the individual citizens. Each individual is the child of his people and likewise the child of his time, insofar as the state is seen to be seen, to be in the process of developing. No one is left behind by his time nor can he overstep it. So People that look like geniuses, philosophical or artistic or political geniuses, they're still saying something that is already in the content of the geist of that, that group think. So obviously there's diversity because those are people that may teach us things, but you can't really say something outside of your the cultural milieu. Yeah, and there are certainly particular things which people would say that they're passionate about and which 99% of people, you know, it's like polling people and asking them if, if they think that freedom is a good idea or something like that. You know, it reminds me of people talking about freedom, 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 you know, that that is or, or democracy. That's a near universal value in our country. How many people are going to are going to speak against that? Mm-hmm. That that is the, the spirit of the times. And yet people would think of it as their their personal passion. They wouldn't they wouldn't think, oh, I've, I've just been brainwashed by or influenced by the culture. They would this is their subjective will al- aligning with, with the state. Right. So again, he really sees this close tie between the religion and the state and in fact, so the state is sort of founded on the religion, but then the state should be used to put somewhere he says bushels and bushels of religion on people. You should use the state. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. Uh, having arrived at the correct conviction that the state rests on religion, religion can take the position that the state is already there, and that in order to maintain the state, religion must be brought in in buckets and bushels to be impressed on people's minds. Sounds very Machiavellian. Right. It is entirely <laughs> correct that people should be trained in religion, but not in something that is not yet there. So, and, and likewise, he says it's silly to sort of talk about what's the best kind of government as if now we can all vote and maybe we'll vote to have a different kind of government than we currently have because mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. Like those things are very tied together. So I guess you'd have to say that the U.S. with this disconnect between religion and the state is pretty dysfunctional. You think? Or it's just the next phase that according to the his analysis coming from his time, it would be dysfunctional. But that's only because we've achieved a new stage in history where things are different. Well, and it's also, it's a question of what you are going to call a religion, which Mm. I think becomes a very difficult question. Like, again, you know, people talk about democracy and freedom and those sorts of things with a religious fervor. It's something that few people would question. I I don't know if it counts or not. I'm just putting that out there as a... I'm sorry. Doesn't, I mean, isn't in this context, isn't he really using the word religion to function as a, for his need for morality? The state has to have like law, morality, and government. So isn't that really the function of religion? It's so that the state doesn't have morality per se. Religion functions almost like an organ of the state to provide the necessary morality. Morality, but also uh, the concept of authority, I would think, because he makes a distinction a lot between Catholicism and Protestantism. And I understood that to mean that Catholicism is much more by having the Pope at its center it's much less inclined to emphasize the individual's freedom, whereas Protestantism is emphasizing your personal relationship with God, not you standing under the priest who has to interpret everything. So it's not just the morality, it's also it's going to determine your relationship to authority, and thereby what kind of authority they should have and how many rights you should have under it. But wait, what is not what the, the monarch is for? I mean, the Constitution doesn't provide the kind of authority that, that he thinks is necessary. And he has that section where he talks about why a Constitution creates the state as an abstraction and that that's important. You don't want the state to be embodied in an individual. Sure. Yeah. Or, or in any kind of body or anything like that. So the Constitution is the perfect but it doesn't provide any either real world or moral authority. There's no authority in it. It's just simply an abstraction of the codes and the set of laws and, and the values and so forth. So you still do need some kind of a body there, but you don't want it to be a sovereign per se or a, or a democracy, God forbid. And his objection to democracy is because it ultimately can't get anything done. It doesn't have any direction because the the masses can sort of you can get 51 votes either way on a whim it could change from moment to moment so it makes the state directionless he explicitly talks in here about forms of government where you had to have unanimous decisions for everything and in that case nothing gets done like government just falls apart instantly yeah well i think his complaint about democracy was he, he that's where he mentions rousseau where he says that democracy really represents oppression of the minority mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that that's not really what he's looking for either it's very strange because in a certain sense, this, there's no way you would have elections or there wouldn't be public debate because somehow, you know, guys, I, I'm trying to think of some way to, to make sense of this. And there's a section on page 55 where he talks about freedom of nature versus freedom in the state. He does, mm-hmm. he does say that it, it, is, it does appear to be contradictory. Like he's like, I'm, I know that saying that you find liberty and freedom in obeying the state doesn't make sense. But let me tell you why that works. What I got out of it was 
The state of nature never really existed, but even if it did, it's not a state of freedom. It's a state of injustice and violence. And that injustice and violence is what gets limited by the state, not your reason. And that it's only in the state where you can experience self-consciousness, where you can essentially come to terms with your own existence and in a weird way, I guess, only rely on yourself for your own existence. He's talking about an abstract, or not an abstract, a a real-world instantiation of a place where people are completely free to be self-aware. But also the the state of nature, you're you're subject to your—I know you were just saying this, but there's a slavery to one's— whims and one's passions right that's not a that's a picture of liberty but it's not a picture of freedom in the larger sense right it's a complete reversal it's not like we're free in the state of nature and then we give it up in society it's that we're slavish during the nasty and brutish time and then in society we develop the which this is an idea like you know we develop the capacity to have some sort of meaningful freedom which again always means obedience to some law or another you know for Kant, it was towards these laws given by oneself for, for Hegel, it's the state insofar as it is the collective self, let's say. So he really wants to talk about the state as an individual sort of attaining self-consciousness, attaining actualization of what it was in concept. And this you know, really struck a chord with me in terms of America. So we have these constitutional documents of freedom and opportunity and things. But you can see, you could interpret our history you know, through the Civil Rights Act and through you know, slowly actually recognizing all of the citizens as full citizens, that we are sort of, we're on the step of, oh, if only more of those conservatives would uh, die off, then, then we could fulfill what we were on paper in the first place. And so he would have even the same thing, again, in his constitutional monarchy or whatever, that, that each society is going to have kind of its own mission that's defined by its character. And that's what it's like working itself through over time, which is going to imply some conflict. Even if you have a monarchy that's supposed to be looking out for everybody and representing everybody and letting everybody have their freedom safe from the harms of others in this social contract like you were talking about, there's still going to be some kind of impetus forward. Or else you're just living through habit and the society is just stagnant and will eventually fall to the wayside. Yeah, and you know there were there were tremendous tensions. During the signing of the Constitution, of course, it wasn't as if America simply embraced slavery. There were huge tensions that ultimately led to the Civil War, but they were there from the beginning. And I only know this because... <laughs> Because I saw an episode of Drunk History on uh, <laughs> funnierdie.com. Have you ever... Uh, I watched the Drunk History ones, yes. Oh, my God. They're amazing. They get someone really... I don't know if you've seen it, Seth, but for the for the audience, they get someone really, really drunk and then have them tell about some historical event and and then they have it enacted out word for word. So if someone's <laughs> burping or, or vomiting, then Ben Franklin is going to burp or vomit or do whatever the narrator is doing. <laughs> So someone was telling a story of Washington's slaves, and I found slavery at the time and how Washington had a runaway slave who he tried to get back. But then in his will, he releases all his slaves and he makes this excuse about how, well, the only reason I didn't release them during my lifetime is because my wife had slaves and they would have missed each other. She wasn't willing to release her, so I couldn't have released <laughs> this interesting stuff. And then I found this autobiography that I'm reading right now from, from the Revolutionary War onwards. There were large populations of free blacks in the United States in various parts mm-hmm. but anyway he, he was free and then he was abducted and made a slave for 12 years and then he wrote this autobiography 12 years a slave i'm just thinking of the sorts of tensions there that are you know these dynamic tensions that'll lead to the next progression i thought 12 years a slave wasn't that the story you wrote about grad school <laughs> 
Very good. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad that all of that long tangent led to set you up. So, well, one of the things that as soon as you start talking about the state and a government and all that is that the interaction between states has a large effect on how the states themselves govern themselves. And this idea that there will be this sort of static, self-contained state full of self-conscious subjects, spirit actually existing in the world, if it was ever possible, it certainly isn't possible now. When you think about global interaction, we would have to move to a single world government, a single world state, which means reconciling the fact that the Chinese and the Indians haven't been moving forward as fast as they need to be compared to us, you know. On Hegel's account. On Hegel's account, yes. Because the United States is going to have to come to grips with the fact that pretty soon the finite amount of the world's resources are going to be earmarked and we will no longer be able to continue our life of consumption as we have. And we're going to be in a different position vis-a-vis other nations in the world as we vie for these natural resources and as we continue to do things that impact the environment, our own immediate surroundings and so forth. Communism is inevitable. (laughs) Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, the the Chinese have their own issues to deal with, but we are certainly going to come head to head with them. We became a consumer culture faster than anybody else, and we're better at it than anybody else. But believe me, they'll beat us. (laughs) Actually, their per capita GDP is now higher than the United States. Is it? Just saw that stat. (laughs) Well, good for them. Quickly becoming a consumer society, but... But, I, you know, I think there's short-term stuff, and then there's Star Trek. What are things going to look like in 100,000 years and when we're dealing with Klingons and stuff? <laughs> All right, let me, let me say something. I feel like this emphasis on the state as the thing that is driving the spirit of a society seems just really overblown. And, again, maybe this is more our modern sensibility talking through me than anything else. But the culture is so much bigger than who the government is. There's so many more things adding up to that, certainly in our culture, when the means of communication are not owned by the government, when there's just all sorts of different entities, many of them corporate, but just, you know, other voices that can easily be heard by us and that are feeding into our intellectual climate that are not the state. And may, I, maybe I think this... he means something larger than that by the state, though. But he, uh, no, he means the actual, we need a, a monarch in particular because we need some actual one dude who is like being the personality of the state at any given time. He's but, talking but about the state. On page 68, summing up what has been said of the state, we find that we have been led to call its vital principle as actuating the individuals who compose it, morality. The state, its laws, its arrangements constitute the rights of its members. Its natural features, its mountains, air and waters are their country, their fatherland, their outward material property. The history of this state, their deeds, what their ancestors have produced, belongs to them and lives in their memory. All is their possession, just as they are possessed by it, for it constitutes their existence, their being. That sounds like a very robust notion of state, where there's a heavy cultural 
element is where there and then you get that german fatherland thing which is scary but right well it's just yeah it's this old nationalism that's only half alive because you know our country is so big that you know i'm not going to have that sort of uh, attachment to all the rivers and streams of the entire united states like it's going to be a fairly restricted area that i'm particularly familiar with i'm not going to be that much more in love with the uh, badlands of south dakota than i'm going to be some equivalent thing in canada Certainly. That's because you hate the troops. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and well, no, but this is, this is something conservatives stress, stress too. Don't I think, don't you think there are a lot of people who do feel sentimental about all those things? About everything. Just, I I would think, you know, some of the most patriotic people as, as, as we former Texans or current Texans know, are the Texans who really have this Texas nationalism. It's not even U.S. nationalism. And to me, there's something even more authentic about that. At least you're when you're talking about a smaller something that is more the size of the kind of state that he had in mind, that's something you actually can be authentically sentimental about and not just abstractly sentimental about like do you really feel that much yes there's a common cultural background and a certain bond that you know i and the american citizens in hawaii and the american citizens in alaska have so there is a commonality there but is it any deeper than say just english speaking people who watch a lot of the same tv shows that we watch you know well, which includes not me, just america or let me jump in on this because okay it, you know, there are a lot of just overtly nationalistic people in the United States. There's people who take it very seriously. It drives, you know, one half of the political expression in this country, like very, very souped up nationalism, I think. E- even for those of us who consider ourselves very critical of our country or, or you know, on the left. I, you know, I've been in situations where I get in conversations with people from other countries who start expressing criticisms that normally I would think were accurate, but then suddenly um, my ear is pricked up and more attuned to nuances, and I start feeling understood. And it's amazing to me how quickly I can actually start to feel that identity, that national identity kick in. It's not merely about TV shows and this and that. There, there is a what it means to be an American. There is a common identity. Don't you think? I've, I've offended you once again. <laughs> I thought I I thought I had granted that, but I guess I'm just I don't place the same importance on it as he seems to. That this is not it does not exhaust yeah. what we think of as culture. To me, culture is something both larger and smaller than being an American. There's so many subcultures that we form our identity. And so much of that just, again, has to do, you can just interpret it as the melting pot that America is or, but it has just as much to do with the modern age and how you can sort of pick your subcultures to identify with. And uh, so everybody has seen the same geeky movies or whatever, whatever the thing is that, or knows about NASCAR, whatever the thing is that drives you, that makes you feel connection with other people. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a that's a hard question. What at what level and what kinds of subculture subgroup are you, are you tied most strongly to? And then, then there's your family, of course, which is like the sort of mini nation, the prototype for the nation. Well, it's or funny what he says tribe. about family that that's like pre-social because mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's just until the the kids are old enough to object. But obviously, he doesn't have a lot of. He's not like giving any credence 
any respect for the the woman's role in it because he, he sees that a family is kind of, you can just treat it as a unit because you don't have to consider them as individuals. They're just all together, unified in their will, presumably under the dominance of the of the man, though he doesn't say it that way. But that seemed pretty clearly what it looked like. That That's why individual members of the family don't have rights versus each other. Like, what kind of relationships do you have, Hegel? That you, you don't have a... You and your wife don't have rights <laughs> toward each other in some important way. Well, growing up, I mean, as a child, of course, it's a, right. You, right, you're living under you're living under a tyranny. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> Benevolent or not, the family is not an appropriate structure for the state. <laughs> Well, and then he, and he even goes beyond that, like talks yeah. about the communities led by the priest as being kind of like the pseudo father, mm-hmm. that that's not a state either. That's just an extension of the family, even though you can see how that leads up to the state. It's prehistory for the state. That's right. Models based on family yeah. rely on feelings for the father slash monarch. And we can't have people have feelings for the state. That's not going to work. So it sounds like the cohesiveness and the sentimentality for those those other groups is actually that's the state is defined against that, right? Well, that's it's so. not enough to make it to give it an actual separate unity or something to make it an an actualized self consciousness. I'm starting to just spout <laughs> crap now. <laughs> Because it's getting late and Hegel's getting on my nerves and uh, trying to live in his world and it's hard. It's a rough place. Let's do the roundup then. Point one, there's this mysterious force that drives world history, manifests itself in the world. I'm going to have to say I could find a way to get on board with that, although probably not in the same way (laughs) as he is. Two. How can you get on board with that? Because I can come up with some sense of mystical or tie into the quantum physics thing, and I could find a way to make it work. So for your personal, the way you think about it yourself, you, you're okay with that? The way I think about it myself, I could come up with some concept of a, some kind of underlying principle that motivates, that gets expressed in the world. Look, I studied Heidegger. What can I tell you? There's a lot of, you see a lot of, there's a lot of echoes in Heidegger of this kind of stuff. World you know what I mean if you just read Heidegger. Yeah, I just try not to name drop. I made a bunch of notes so that when we do talk about him, the idea that there's an end, though, like a rational end, that history has a mar- is a march of progress towards some sort of goal, I cannot get on board with. I don't believe. Uh, I believe that, that's what I thought you were saying. You were on board with. No, I'm on board with the idea that there is some sort of a force that motivates action and and changes history but not for any particular end. Well, what's the mystical element there if it's not? Because if it's God, then God would have an end in mind, right? <laughs> so if it's not... Yeah, no, I... Well, we... I was going to accuse you of being a, a cultural, intelligent design person. No, no, no. I mean, I, <laughs> you could think of an imminent principle instead of a transcendent principle so that, well... so think it's a stop sign or something? Yeah, no, no, it, <laughs> not necessarily. I mean, if you think in terms of truth, that there's a principle that changes world historical epochs to show a different face of the world to you, to make things appear differently than they are, to expose, to hide and show truths, different kinds of truths but not necessarily for the purpose of getting you to an absolute truth. It's just you go through these world historical epochs and the world looks different to to the people that live in those epochs. But it's just going to keep evolving till the sun (laughs) expands. It's not necessarily evolution. It's it's not evolution. It's just change. It's not evolution. It's just change. I actually liked some of the stuff he had to say early on. I thought he was very readable in this text compared to some of his other texts. 
I think there's some interesting work we could have done to focus on his talk about state of nature in, in opposition to some of the stuff we, we read. And of course, I found the one piece of poetic language that's in there. But I'm just going to end and leave with this one comment that he quotes, No man is a hero to his valet, not because he is not a hero, but because the latter is a valet. Let me, uh, I'll let you go last, Wes, because I want to say the two things that you just identified, one of which you agreed with and one of which you didn't, I'll take the opposite tack on that. Okay. I don't buy the sort of necessary, imminent push of history. I think there are so many different things that come up that can push history one way or the other within a given society, within a given art movement, within a given science. It's, and it's not random. It's just that there are too many agencies. There's no one directing principle. And I don't think anything like Hegel's logic can enable you to predict it, the movement of these things, even in principle. However... I think there is something, if you talk about the ultimate end of history or something, in some ways, like, there's only one direction to go. <laughs> like, I, I buy his picture of the beginning of society as despotic, as people taking power over one another. And though I'm not optimistic that things are progressing right now so that you're going to have more and more emphasis on the individual worldwide, you know, universal education and everybody really being as up to speed as our cultural elite. I think that's the way things eventually just have to go. You know, it might take hundreds of thousands of years, but there's just no other. We could, we could go up and go down and go up and go down, but either we're all going to be extinguished or it will eventually reach a very high level like that. And uh, once you get there, I don't, I don't know if you can turn it around and go back the other direction unless you uh, have a catastrophic event. I feel like I should be the synthesis between you two, you two guys now. <laughs> awesome. But, uh, <laughs> I don't think I can do that. When you were talking there, Mark, I was thinking about entropy and that there's a sort of directedness yeah. in that sense, even to the physical universe. Things are, speaking of evolution, I guess it's going in, in the larger sense in the opposite direction. Things are ultimately falling apart. But if you apply that culturally, you know, again, I'm thinking of Marx, where it's as if all these class distinctions are ultimately being wiped out. Everything is sort of dissolving down into a certain kind of soup. You know, maybe that's what the state ultimately is doing to the individual. I don't know. I really don't know. I'd have to I have to think more about this idea of progression and and this overarching spirit principle and I uh, I have to say at one level it appeals to me I have to admit, and I'm not willing to uh, discard of any of it outright even the craziest stuff. I don't know if it helps to analyze history. <laughs> I guess that's what when I'm reading this as an introduction to the philosophy of history and okay, fine. I didn't actually read the rest of the book. <laughs> after the introduction, so I can't really dismiss it, but it sure doesn't make me hopeful that he's going to have lots of illuminating things to say about history. One of my brother-in-laws is a, not Dylan, but another one is a, you know, was a history PhD and it was forced to read this at some point. And I don't think it was particularly made his study of history any more illuminated. Well, because it's not about, yeah, it's not a study of history. Right. It's, it's supposed to give you a key to unlocking and understanding history in a way that you would not otherwise. And I don't think it does that. I, I think it I just tells no, you. I, about, I don't think that's yeah. what it's, it's supposed to give you a key to unlocking spirit. No, but it's understanding history as the unfolding of spirit. Yeah. History that's how is, that, that having this idea of spirit and understanding his logic and his conception of spirit is supposed to give you insight into historical events.
I don't know, because he acknowledges on the face of it, there's a lot of chaos and counterexamples, and you're not going to necessarily see the progression that he's talking about. Doesn't he give you that caveat? Well, and he says, I'm, but if you if you put forth an alleged counterexample, it's going to be just the kind of counterexample that proves the rule. And he gives an example of like, oh, we think that there's a teleological thing within the human genome and within human development that will all have brains and two arms and two legs and if you bring forth some sort of abortion is the word that art my translation uses that you know doesn't have yeah. a brain and th- things and say look that's not what a human is in fact that even makes it clearer that what you have brought forward is not a human it does not uh, we, we can be even more confident about the teleology involved so yeah but, but clearly he's not restricting all of it and saying that you, you shall only do this type of universal history he's or philosophical universal history there you know the, the average historian is is doing something much different they're doing actual history not bullshitting about philosophy of history but i like the i prefer the i mean i, I love history too all right, as well, far as an activity, I, I'd prefer bullshitting about it. Preferably be on a podcast. So. Um, next, next time we're actually going to do, to some degree, an applied use of uh, Hegel's analysis of history, specifically in the history of art. So we were going to read some essays by Arthur Danto, who is a modern American philosopher very well known in the area of aesthetics. Some works from his book, The Philosophical Disenfranchisement of Art which he came out with in 1986, though a lot of the essays in there are from a little earlier. The, the essay by that name, which is the first one in there, The End of Art is the most famous one in there. Uh, and maybe, maybe we'll get to the second essay, which is The Appreciation and Interpretation of Works of Art. So we get to talk about all the crazy stuff that was going on in the modern art world from the 60s forward, where people were putting up a snow shovel and saying, in, an, in a museum and signing and saying, look, that's art. And that was sort of the reductio ad absurdum of art, very often discussed in these aesthetics classes. So unfortunately, those since that's a, a modern reading, you have to buy the book if you want to read along. Okay. So uh, be sure to look at partiallyexaminedlife.com for some announcements for a lot of cool stuff being posted in the blog, like my weekly music blog that I'm sure you guys read all the time. Yeah. It, I, I read at least the first paragraph <laughs> of everything you post, Mark. <laughs> Go on and discuss. We have a Facebook page with some discussions on it. You should give us some feedback on how we're doing, whether you like these three-person ones, whether we're going to have some more guests in some upcoming episodes. Maybe you want to be a guest. Maybe you should uh, post a lot of intelligent things about stuff that we've already posted to make us want to contact you and say, hey, why don't you be a guest? Though we will probably not do that, but we might. (laughs) That's the only way in, is to prove to us that you are awesome. So, good night to everybody, as far as I'm concerned. Good night. (laughs) Good night. In this cold, I feel something wrong in my nose, on my lips and tongue. Kiss this dog, I just may. Is that wrong? I forget. Far too much, too often Feel my frozen eyeballs soften Feel my blood, it's slowing down Lose my sense of sense of center Areas I should not enter Beckon me to hang inside them 
know I've already tried them yeah Ask myself am I really here can I help feeling what I But there's no other crime is beating me And I will add in time that's cheating me Take a pen, take a pen to spell out the abrasions Even then, even then, I'm asking for invasions of rocks and stones And sticks and bones and things that might have hurt me in the past Come around and come around and the irritations last And I know, yes, I know what they're chasing for In this weather my life looks this poor Some regrets just won't Turning rotten, we live actions best forgotten. Coming back to sink on me, feeling pressure on my shoulders. Shouldn't ever now be older. Long I've grown, stink of me. Wipe that stupid wink off me by now.